Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. First off, at the very top, I just want to say thank you for emailing us, Dan and Ian, and producer Jane. Those are our email addresses at tropicalmba.com. Your thoughts, ideas, prompts, replies, just thoughtful emails have really inspired this show lately. And I just dusted off the in-person podcasting setup. It's been a long time since I used it. The old H4N with the SM58s, my travel podcast gear is heavy, but it's worth it to do in-person pods. And we intend to do a lot of them. Ian and I have an office this summer in sunny Barcelona. And frankly, we got a lot to talk about. And we have you guys to thank for that. I'm really looking forward to it. Actually, right when I upload these files, I'm going to jump on a plane to Paris and then take the train onward to Barcelona. So hopefully lots of cool travel stories and business ideas this summer on this pod. Today, we have an amazing interview for you. I got off this phone call so completely energized. We have a returning guest and one of my favorite writers in the financial space. His name is Sam Dogan, and he is the man behind, I'm just going to say it, my favorite personal finance blog of all time. That's because Sam walks the walk and he's not scared to walk into the most important step of personal finance, which is how to generate income, how to successfully invest. Most personal financial bloggers They don't do it because it's complicated and because they don't walk the walk. They don't have the experience. Also, Sam has an intense knowledge of finance, as we'll hear today. And importantly, he's the author of a new book coming out this summer. He's never pulled together all his philosophies in one tome. And I read it and it's amazing. And we're going to talk about it today. So Sam Dogan is the author of Financial Samurai. And his new book coming out this summer is called Buy This not that. And although he was a pioneer in the traditional financial independence retire early model or FIRE, he's also been evolving and updating it. He believes that you can't just set it and forget it. And he also thinks in terms of optimizing for different time periods in your life. And there's just a subtlety and an honesty to Sam's thinking and writing. And it comes across in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So a brief public service announcement before we jump into it. There's a small technical issue at the end of the episode where the quality of Sam's line just drops just a tad. So apologies in advance for that. All right, let's roll it. This is Sam, Sam Dogan from Financial Samurai. And I started Financial Samurai in 2009 during the previous global financial crisis when everything was melting down. And I worked in banking for 13 years and I was in banking when I started Financial Samurai. And it was just a great way for me to try to get my thoughts and fears out because I had lost 35% of my net worth in about six months after spending more than 10 years trying to build it. Sam, back in those days, I'll make an admission. When I first encountered Financial Samurai, I saw the little cartoon going around and you would comment on people's blogs and you were part of that early cabal of, wow, we can blog now. This is kind of cool. (laughs) 
And I never thought you would be somebody with such an impressive background because I thought at the time, like bloggers were these outcasts, these people mm. on the fringes of society. And then the more I read and learned about you, man, this is a guy that had a really high quality career. What was it about, like, you have this prestige status career mm. and then you go into the internet as a cartoon character and start writing essays, which is low prestige at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Why were you willing to do something low prestige, given the fact that you sort of had the world as your oyster at the time? Well, I don't know about prestige. I think the prestige, the giddiness of finding your first job out of college, mine was in 1999 at Goldman Sachs. So that was considered a prestigious job in New York City. Goldman Sachs was a private company in 1998, went public in 1999. It was the top investment bank. And it's like winning the lottery. But like all things, you kind of get used to it. After six months, a year, you're like, okay, I work at this prestigious firm. Who cares? I didn't build the firm. So after 10 years, I decided to start Financial Samurai, partly because I wanted to see if I could create something on my own. There's no better feeling than creating something from nothing because you get all the rewards and you get all the failures. That if you created something successful, that is so rewarding because it was because of you. Whereas if you join a Goldman or a McKinsey or a Google, Facebook, is it because of you or because it's the reputation of the firm? So I really wanted to scratch that itch and figure out on my own to see what I could do. So the idea was try to make a million dollars a multiple different ways. You can make a million dollars through your career. Okay, done. Try to make a million dollars from real estate. Okay, done. Try to make a million dollars from creating an online business or a blog or create products, done. And so after a while, you realize it's not a fluke anymore because you're always wondering, are you an imposter? Are you fake? You were different from the rest of a lot of bloggers in the financial space at the time and in the entrepreneurial space because so many people, like you mentioned, Ramit, in your book with the nice sports jacket and the crossed arms and the profile pictures all over. And they put themselves front and center as these experts, whereas you never did that. But yeah. you're a handsome guy. You totally could have done that. <laughs> oh, man. What was the reason that you took this backseat in the brand and never asserted yourself as a persona? I didn't want my good looks to distract people from the writing. <laughs> no. So here was the other challenge, right? So let's say you work at Goldman Sachs and you got your MBA from Berkeley. So you have a decent resume, right? That's my resume. And then, so if I started writing, maybe people would have taken me seriously because of my resume, my background or not. But I wanted the challenge of writing great content that was super helpful or super entertaining that people could appreciate and share and enjoy and consume without knowing who I was. So in the sense that if the content on its own could stand on its own and grow on its own without having the me be a public figure without my background and looks or whatever, that would be a true testament that I was creating good content. I was writing good stuff. I thought that was like the greatest challenge. One of the greatest challenges. I agree with you because you could have taken the shortcut of the sport jacket, the California <laughs> guy, look at all these jobs I've had. It would have helped in the short term. I'm sure it would have helped, but also I started the site when I had a job and I didn't want to have that conflict of interest. So I wanted to just focus on my job, but also do this on the side. However, in 2017, I got the last of my deferred compensation, which was paid out unbelievably over five years after I left my job, severance negotiation. And I could have been a more public figure to say, hey, here I am. What's up? This is what I've done. But I've always just felt 
I didn't want that attention. And especially when it comes to money, this is what early on, as soon as I said, I write on Financial Samurai, I talk about personal finance, then the questions would be rattled off. What should I invest in? What should I do with my money? It was like a whole work session. Whereas all I wanted to do is just chill at the park with friends or just play tennis or whatever. So it was an idea of just staying low key, low profile, stealth wealth, and just being a nobody. It just felt really good. That stealth wealth thing really was a cool chapter. And I want to talk about that. Before we get there, I want to kind of walk through the book. Do you see yourself as a part of any kind of writing tradition? Were there people that you were reading in the 2000s that you were like really into and creeped into your style? Because now you're launching a serious book with a serious publisher. And there's definitely a clear tone and a style that you have. And I'm curious who inspired it. I just read so much online that I don't know if there's one person that inspired it. I just felt that if I could just write as if I was speaking and authentically speaking to a friend, someone I really cared about and really look at different perspectives so that people could make more optimal decisions. Because I, I've had 13 years of experience writing and seeing literally 90 million plus people have come to Financial Samurai and I've seen the perspectives from all over. And so one of my goals is if I believe in something strongly, I will seek out the other side of the story so I can elucidate some blind spots because we all have blind spots. And I'm really thankful for the critics, for even the hate emails and all that. Just be like, okay, well, I guess I shouldn't have written it that way because that's offensive to some people or whatever. It's a tight balance. But at the end of the day, I hope in buy this, not that, that my voice comes out quite authentically and it tries to be as rational and helpful as possible. It's interesting because there are a lot of ideologues in the financial space, even some that are interesting and funny and smart and good ideas, but they don't specifically do that. In fact, they are almost religious in tone at times or prefer to dunk on people or whatever it is. There's a lot of low ego talk in your book. Is this specifically low ego or is this just like a meta game that your <laughs> game has to be stronger because you honed your game in higher stakes games like working for banks and very competitive careers. I'm just wondering, is your ego actually lower than others or are you just playing the game smarter? I grew up in Asia. I grew up in Japan, Malaysia, Philippines, Taiwan. And my mom's from Taiwan and my dad's from Hawaii with Asian ancestry. And so culturally wise, it's important for us, I think in our culture, just to be more humble, to be more familial and respect your elders and so forth. And coming to America, it's a little bit different. I came to America in high school and I've been here ever since. And it's more independent culture. It's a more look at what I've done. And Asian culture is more about the family and community. So that's part of my upbringing. When you are able to create the life that you want, you just don't feel like a need to put yourself out there. If you're truly happy and truly satisfied with your wealth or your health or whatever, you don't have to tell people. You just kind of live your life the way it is. And there's nothing really to sell, right? Finally, I have, well, this is my second product, I guess, because I wrote a severance negotiation book back in 2012. So finally, I do have a product to sell, but it's a $25 book. It's not like, it's like a $2,000 e-course that's going to make me millions. If you want to not make a lot of money, write a book. It's a great way to spend a lot of time and not make a lot of money. But that's it. If you're comfortable with yourself, you have the money you want, you're just going to live your life. What's the point of saying, hey, check this out? Also, when you're walking the walk and you do have a large portfolio, the quality of the ideas does matter. And I think that's one way you've separated yourself in the financial space. I wrote this book because I, I'm quoting you. I wrote this book because I don't see 
personal financial books written by people with finance backgrounds who are also living what they recommend. Why? That was like the big aha moment for me in 2008 and 2009. There's nobody with a finance background writing about personal finance. So I said, oh, you know what? I'll fill that hole. Why not? It's a new perspective. And then 13 years later, I still don't see that many people with finance backgrounds writing about finance or personal finance. You've got doctors, you've got engineers, you've got SEO, marketing people. There must be a reason. Are they too busy swimming in cash somewhere to... Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's like right brain and left brain. So maybe if you're, you have a money brain, that's right or left, technical brain. And then the writing process is a creative side. It takes a lot of introspection and creativity. And definitely there are people who are like, why bother writing about personal finance and helping people and all that when I can just focus on my own way to make money. You're just, I'm, you're just too busy trying to make money for yourself. So maybe it is a special skill set. I don't know. To be a good investor and to be a good writer and tell some good stories. There's some normative quality to what you believe most people should be doing with their money. Like you'll say things like, hey, when you're 40, you're like this far done with your life and get real guy. Like you're, you're almost halfway done here. You yeah. ought to be thinking about things like your primary residence. You ought to be thinking about educating your children. And I think that's yeah. really cool. And I'm curious, you go into depth about the cost of education. And yeah. I noticed a lot of American parents that are flexible financially and location wise, considering alternative options in the past five years, they're thinking about educating their children in Europe, in international schools, in Montessori kind of stuff, in collectivized things. What do you think's going on? I guess in Texas in particular, we've had a lot of school shootings and the parents yeah. are just seeking different solutions. What do you make of all this? I think it's really rational that if you don't find an ideal solution, you keep on looking. Our ideal solution in 2020 was to homeschool. And in 2021, eventually we thought we decided to put him in a language immersion school because we thought learning a language while young would be really nice to know 20 years down the road when you're older. I just think parents, we have this steady state anxiety for the well-being of our children. We want the best for them. We would spend any amount of money to make them happy, to fulfill them with joy and purpose. But at the same time, if we are not super rich already, the time and money we spend on them takes away from our own financial security and happiness. It's quite a balance and it's, there's a challenge. And I'm at the, in the viewpoint that your child the best, every child is different, every household is different. Figure out what works for you and most of all, Make them feel loved and safe. Ask them, are you enjoying school? Are your friends nice? Are your teachers paying attention to you? Because I remember going through public school and the most violence that I experienced in my life was during public school. This was high school and it was Northern Virginia. It was a good school. There's bullies, there's guys with butterfly knives, a lot of theft. I got in trouble. So be in tune with your school. I think there's a high correlation with parental involvement with the school and the quality and safety of the school as well. Let's talk about the book a little bit. You say it took you two years to write and you went through 15 edits with five yeah. editors. What's happening? I get the impression that you are a completely proficient writer, that you wake up at, you get on the <laughs> treadmill at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, you pump out the newsletter. I read it at 8 a.m. Like you're a machine, but yet you're describing a pretty painful process. I will process tell you here. one of the reasons why I don't want to write another book is because it's so painful. A lot of cooks in the kitchen, they're all on your side. They want to make the book amazing, inclusive, and a success. 
but I'm not used to that. I'm used to waking up at 6 a.m., 5 a.m. writing, and then I'm done. I, get, I send it to my dad and he makes some edits and that's good. <laughs> and believe it or not, even after the tens and tens of hours of editing, the publisher actually introduced a typo that went to final print. They spelled something wrong, a word wrong, debt. The word debt, D-E-B-T, as in D-E-P-T, three times in the <laughs> subtitle. And I was like, what? I just spent 40 hours with multiple revisions reviewing everything. There was no typo before our last revisions. What happened? And then basically someone who changed the typeset, retyped the titles, and then they introduced the typos. It is such a painful process. It was my first time. So book publishing is a business for them. So as a book publisher, you're like a venture capitalist for books and for authors. You sign 10 authors, you hope one is a huge hit, and then you put your, your marketing dollars behind it. So for me, even though I had 11 years experience when they signed me and a relatively large site, they felt like they needed to hold my hand because I had never done it before. I never wrote a book. They introduced a co-writer, which helped me think about ideas, but I ended up writing like 90% of everything and rewriting a lot of everything. And so they see me as an investment. They want to put people behind me to make it better. And they hope it'll pan out at the end. Often writing is a generative process, even though you've written about a lot of these concepts in the books. Were there things that you wrote yourself into, new ideas that occurred to you while you were writing the book that surprised you or intrigued you? There's a lot of new and old and new in the book. Writing is like therapy, free therapy. And I highly recommend it for anybody going through dilemmas, issues. If you write out your thoughts, things become clearer. A lot of things became clear for me and it brought about a lot of old uh, memories, like maybe repressed memories or things I just far forgot about. I, and it made me appreciate things a little bit more. I was trying to understand why I continue to be so frugal and why I struggled to spend more money despite growing my wealth over time. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. And it brought back memories of my parents and my father drove a 1976 Datsun and it didn't have any paint on it. It was just metallic silver and it only had one hubcap. And I remember taking it out for spin with my buddies at 1 a.m. in the morning. And I was in middle school then. <laughs> and then that one evening, it was monsoon season, so it was raining like crazy. And one of the hubcaps, the remaining hubcap fell off. And it went into the monsoon drain, which is like three feet deep. And it flooded away. It was like rushed <laughs> away. I'm like, oh man, my dad's going to kill me. So we came back, I don't know, 1.40 a.m. It creaked open the gates. We actually turned off the engine, put it in neutral and pushed it into the driveway. And then I was just waiting for my dad the very next day and nothing happened. And I waited again several more days. Nothing happened. Months went by, nothing happened. He had such a beater car that he didn't even notice if anything was beaten up or dented or missing. And so I told this story in the book and it was something that has stuck with me forever because I'm just trying to understand why can't I spend more money to live it up? And so that, that's something that we talk about in the book. You become who you are over the course of decades. I'm just who I am now at 45 years old. You write about, despite your ability to be frugal in the personal finance space, we are urged to budget, avoid consumer debt, stash an emergency fund, all this kind of stuff. But to achieve financial freedom, we need to know how to spend our money in ways that build wealth. Now, this is where most financial advice falls flat. I wrote a polemic about this industry. I was taking issue with something that Mr. Money Mustache said many years ago. And I essentially said, you guys are all missing the point if you're not willing to talk about how to make money. Because 
that's really where the magic happens. And it seems that's something we yeah. agree on. I'm curious as to why you believe that saving isn't enough. First of all, you can only save so much, but the income is unlimited, right? Building a business, generating revenue, earning money is unlimited. And this was actually one of the epiphanies I had while writing the book, because I've always wondered, okay, why don't people, more personal finance writers, more authors talk about making more money, leveraging your money, building a business, investing, whatnot, so you can have such unlimited potential upside. And the realization I had goes back to why I started Financial Samurai in the first place in 2009. It's hard to talk about investing and making more money in a business and all that if you don't have a finance background. But it's much easier to talk about budgeting and saving and investing in index funds if you have no finance background. And so what I've discovered from my friends who are actually, some of my friends who are extremely wealthy is that, hey, the way they built wealth was through investing aggressively, investing in things other than index funds and building a business. It's very hard to get rich in a faster than normal fashion than just investing in index funds and just budgeting and saving. Totally. I think the concept that you have to change your career or upgrade your career or start a side hustle, that's beyond the personal finance blog they're writing. It's challenging and intimidating. You can feel the resistance almost to it quite a bit. And I understand that. Like the idea that you're going to grow a vegetable garden to financial <laughs> success and keep your everything else yeah. the same, it has more appeal to more people, I think, than, hey, continual lifelong learning. Let's go out there and change your career, build a side hustle. That's a harder message to hear for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the natural action is to do nothing or just chill and coast, right? But as the saying goes, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. And it also depends on your personality. I have a competitive personality. I like a challenge and try to grow things. Like I said in the beginning, I was like, okay, let's try to 1 million if you're from your career, 1 million from real estate, 1 million from stock investing. These are fun challenges. And the worst that happens is that you don't succeed. Yeah, who cares? You are going to regret more of the things you don't do than the things you try. Yeah, you tell a vignette of a guy you used to work with. Can you tell the story? It's towards the end of the book. Yeah. A gentleman told you while you were working. Do you remember this story? So my friend and colleague, Conrad, who was the mailman, and the front desk greeter. I saw him every single day for many, many, many years. And I always would talk to him lunchtime or whatever and ask him what's the latest gossip or whatever going on in the office, because he always knew. And I proposed to him an idea, because this was 11 years into my career at the firm and I was getting burned out. And I proposed to him the idea of, hey, what do you think about taking a leap of faith and doing something new? And what do you think about the idea of negotiating a severance? And his words to wisdom to me were, you will regret more of the things you don't try than the things you do. Because he was telling me how he was regretting so many things when he was younger. He was 55 at the time. He was saying it's hard to live in San Francisco off $40,000 a year. It is hard for San Francisco and for New York City. And so I came up with the idea and I was excited to flush it out with him. And then the very next day he was gone. He was let go. He was let go and it actually really pissed me off because you could have let go of one managing director and saved 25 Conrads. So that was yeah. like uh, a pivotal moment for me to stop wasting time, to stop holding back. Because I actually came up with the idea of starting Financial Samurai in 2006 when I graduated from business school part-time. 
But I held off because I was thinking it's time to leverage my degree for my work because my work paid for it. And finally, when the financial crisis occurred, I was like, okay, no more wasting, no more excuses. Let's get going. Monday. 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 What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you couldn't use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving, EN closing, showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. You have a cool thing in your book, like age-appropriate financial strategies and for different uh, elements. And I love that concept. In the 40s, you say, basically, now's your time to go start your side hustle. It occurred to me as I was reading that, man, a lot of people who want to become financially free, they're not going to have the patience to wait. They're going to hear about it when they're 23. Yeah. And they're going to want to get started right away. What's your advice to the people that aren't patient, that aren't going to get everything set up, and they're going to want to go out and build a business right away. 40 is definitely one of the decades, but I break it down 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And if you can start your side hustle ASAP in high school, all the more power to you because you're going to learn along the way. So my advice to people who want to start sooner is to start sooner. (laughs) Just go (laughs) ahead and you will figure things out along the way. It's better than any business school education, better than any college education. You will learn so much about starting a small business because you will have to be the creator, the marketer, the financier. And these are all great life skills. Learning how to market is something super important, right? So I'm not a marketer. How can I be a marketer if I'm a private person who doesn't, I'm who I'm, if I'm not in the spotlight? But also I realize that great content only goes so far. Sadly, I would say that... 90 million people, that's decent. Yeah, that's pretty decent. But... Here's the thing I would say, and this is a little cynical way of looking at things, but it's also really positive that let's say the pie to success is 100%. What percentage, two variables, great product or content or marketing? I would say marketing would be responsible for 60 to 65% of that success. And the great product or great content would be 35 to 40%. What makes you think that? Because I see products all the time that are not very good, but they're very successful because they have right messaging, right communication skills. They pull the right emotion. So the positive of that, right? The positive of marketing being the majority dictator, determinant of success is that you don't have to know what you're talking about. (laughs) If you're a great communicator, great marketer, if your content is, let's say it's regurgitated, repeat content from the history, but you can repackage that, man, you're probably going to do well. So that allows people, enables people actually to create successes that would require a lot of experience and skill normally. What are some ideas in the personal finance space that aren't so high quality, that aren't particularly useful? 
You mentioned that 25 times your annual expenses is not enough. It's a traditional... Um, Based on the 4% rule. Correct. Maybe we could dig into that for, as a starter. Oh, yeah. So the 4% rule came about in the mid-90s when the 10-year bond yield was 5% to 6%. So the 10-year bond yield is the risk-free rate of return you can get by buying a 10-year treasury bond and holding it for 10 years. If you buy a U.S. government bond, the U.S. government's going to give you 5% every single yeah. year? Yeah. So if you give the, the government $100,000, they're going to give you $5,000 every year. Every year and your principal back 10 years later. So that's a foundational piece for personal finance. The 4% rule was born in the 1990s when you could get a guaranteed 5 to 6% return. So of course <laughs> you could withdraw at a 4% rate on your portfolio and never run out of money because you got a guaranteed 5 to 6% rate of return. This is something that nobody talks about. I don't know why. I guess maybe it's because of a lack of financial background. But again, if you can get a guaranteed 6% rate of return, saying you can withdraw at a 4% rate of return on your stock and bond portfolio is not that amazing. You don't need a PhD. You don't even need an elementary school education to understand that 6% and 5% are greater than 4%. But I can tell you from my generation, Sam, that a lot of people think the 4% rule applies to their total equity portfolio or index fund portfolio. Yeah, it applies to your investments. And what I'm saying is that times 30 years later are different. The 10-year bond yield has been coming down for 40 years. So the risk-free rate of return is coming down for 40 years. There's been operational efficiencies. The internet was created in the 90s. Rates have come down, even though they're spiking back up because of inflation is back up, but it's probably gonna roll over again. In other words, you've gotta be dynamic. You can't just focus on a 4% rule from 35 years ago <laughs> and stick to that for the rest of your life. Are you kidding me? No, I'm telling you as a practitioner of retirement, fake retirement, by the way, that <laughs> you just can't be a robot and stick to that. You've got, the, this is one of the ironies. It's just, I don't care. You've got PhDs who are studying about retirement who are not retired and they have cushy pension funds at the end of their career. Yeah, you can be academic all you want. You can go through your numbers, but unless you experience the insecurity, the unknown of not having a steady paycheck, not having subsidized health insurance, 401k matching and a pension, you don't really know what it's like in <laughs> retirement or when you don't have that steady income. It's like you telling me how to raise children when you don't have children, or you telling me how to invest in real estate when you've never bought a property. So that's why I think this book, Buy This, Not That, had to be written because I'm writing from firsthand experience. I'm taking in a lot of different perspectives and I'm highlighting the landmines out there that you might not see so you can make the best decision for yourself. A lot of virtual ink has been spilled about passive income on the web. And yeah. passive income uh, represents part of your equation to ultimately reaching financial freedom. Can you help us out to understand the relationship between passive active income and our investment portfolio in general? Yeah, active income is anything you got to spend time doing to create the money. Passive income, there's a grade to that, but it's any income that you can generate without having to spend time. But all passive income requires first a lot of active energy to create. You mentioned that you want to get that passive income to the point where it covers yeah. your expenses. That's one equation you write. And also that you should have 20, how many times? 20 times your, your gross earnings. annual. Yeah. 
your gross annual earnings. So you're saying financial freedom is if I make $100,000 a year, that I would have $2 million in liquid assets. Walk us through that equation and how you got there. You can go back to the 4% rule, which is 25 times expenses. If you have 25 times expenses, people say they're financially independent. I say maybe, maybe not. Because what I've found is that if you use expenses as a multiple, you tend to cheat. You tend to just cut your expenses to eat ramen noodles and drink water and say, hey, I'm financially independent. And you <laughs> tend to cheat when you want to give up. You know what I'm saying? You're like so exhausted. You're like, screw this. I want to go spend money on whatever. Mm. But if you use a multiple of income, I think that's a much wiser, much more disciplined way because it helps you continuously save and invest as your income grows. And for most of us, our income grows from our 20s, 30s, and 40s, maybe it plateaus in our 40s. So that keeps you disciplined because we all know stories of millionaires, multimillionaires who end up spending way more and then they end up bankrupt or they just end up, where's all my money? So using a multiple of income is wiser than expenses because you can't cheat that way. And I think once you hit about 10 times your gross annual income, you start really feeling that momentum and that financial independence. And once you're at about 20 times, that's when you can really take it down a notch. When you say take it down a notch, what do you mean? You can retire early. You can take a low paying job. You can actually do work that you enjoy, not because of the money or the health insurance and benefits. That's what taking down a notch is. You have a, an incredible roadmap in the book. You start with mindset. You go on to investing. You talk about earning. You have a whole, God bless you, Sam. You have a whole chapter about how to earn, <laughs> how to do this. And it resolves to focusing on some of the most important things in life. So there's a system here that you're laying out implicitly. Where do people screw this up? I think entrepreneurs are a risk class because we take risks financially to get payoffs in the future. We pay other people before we pay ourselves. Sometimes we fall into wish thinking, lottery ticket mentality, a gambler's mindset. And I know you have a lot of entrepreneurial friends. I'm wondering, do they process your ideas differently and how do they uniquely screw it up? I guess. They just wing it. They wing their finances. So 10 years later, they wonder where all their money was because they didn't have a plan. They didn't have a detailed plan. They didn't have those targets. So that's why in Buy This, Not That, I have specific charts for net worth and income targets and all that stuff by age because you need a target. It's like your personal trainer. If you have a target, even if you don't reach that target, you're going to do much better than the person who has no target. And especially much better than the person who just wins it. Because so many people, they wake up five, 10, 20 years later and say, what happened to all my money? And it's because they're not plugged in. They're not focused on that target. They're not consuming personal finance information that at least gets them motivated and thinking about their money more than the average person. And in terms of entrepreneurs, I think entrepreneurs, it's a personality trait. I have in the book different net worth allocation models. So you've got the conventional, you've got a new life, and you've got the financial samurai net worth allocation. The reason why there are three models is because it goes with your personality, actually, and what you want. So the conventional model is someone who has the day job and is happy to work 30, 40 years in their job. And as you move closer to the financial samurai net worth allocation model, the greater percentage goes to your X factor which is betting on yourself, which is building that side hustle, building your own business. The wealthiest people in the world are all entrepreneurs. They're the ones who took the most risk. And so you've got to discover what's in it for you. For me, after 13 years of working in finance and getting my MBA, I said, you know what? 
I think I've learned as much as I could learn from my day job. So I'm going to take that leap of faith, bet on myself some more. I don't want to ride on Goldman's coattails or Credit Suisse's coattails. I want to see if I can do something myself. I know so many of your readers have bought the message. It feels like so many of my peers, though, don't have good personal financial hygiene. And I include myself in that category <laughs> for a long period of my career. And I don't know, my message to anybody who's thinking about picking up the book or is a little bit scared to log into their bank account or whatever is if you just take a day to sit down with your partner, your friend, whatever, and make a pact to yourself that you are going to set a target and look at it and know down to the details and follow a plan like this, it can be one of the most empowering fun days you'll have all year long. It's awesome. Um, so a couple things, one from an entrepreneurial perspective, we know about the volatility of income. It's not predictable. Good days are really good, but good years are really bad. Years are really bad. And so one of my recommendations, you are that entrepreneur, you're taking a lot of the risk, is to approach it with a dumbbell strategy. The income you generate, sure, reinvest it in your business to be a great return, but also consider diversifying your net worth away from your business, building real assets, total real assets that just are going to not go poop overnight. And those real assets are usually real estate, maybe fine art, something you can enjoy. Because these are the things that if your business goes to hell, you'll still own. And hopefully if they generate income, that's how a lot of very wealthy business people have done. They've diversified and built conglomerates from their business and they've pivoted. And one thing you mentioned about how fun it is to talk about money, actually, the book was written in a way where after every dilemma, whether it's private school or public school or joining a startup or working in an established firm, the idea was to read it with a friend or a loved one and then discuss your point of view, argue your point of view over and see who will win while having the humility and knowing that there's no 100% right answer, but there is an optimal answer. The final piece of the process is focus on the important things in life. There are narratives in our society that people that get rich are miserable. They get addicted to prescription pills and that's why we like to watch reality TV is we like to watch wealthy people behave badly. Part of the process that you're offering us in your book is that part of this journey is really about being able to focus on the important things in life. I wonder if you can comment on what you think those things are and how some of the people in your network that are wealthy, how they do that successfully. I think the people who are miserable, who are wealthy, are those who didn't truly earn their wealth. So if you were born into wealth, if you just inherited a great amount of wealth, there's a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of, can I do this again? And what I've noticed, this is really real. So I'm part of this tennis club. It's like $14,000, right? And so I meet a lot of people and I ask them, Todd, what do you guys do? What do you do for like forever? And they say, oh, I'm starting this business, random business. And five years later, well, how's your business doing? Like, oh yeah, it's going, it's chugging along. But there's no real business. It's just an idea in their head that they're trying to create it's called like a trust fund job, call it, where there's a trust fund store, like a retail store. You're like married to a wealthy person or a trust fund job where you just, you're just like going through the motions, pretending like you're trying to do something, but really you don't have to do anything because you have so much wealth that you have lost so much motivation to do something. That's one point. And the other point is people are trying to prove that they are worth some. The people who are satisfied, who have a lot of money are those who actually built their businesses from the ground up or their businesses are actually doing something helpful. So the bottom line is, 
if you want to be happy while wealthy, you've got to provide some value that you have created. I think you give a very nice hot tip to things like mental health, family, education. But you also create some laughs by talking about stealth wealth. I think that's so funny and apt. The wealthiest people that I know, they very much do not want it to be disturbed or you're put in a vulnerable position by making yourself a public persona based on your wealth. And maybe we are just seeing some kind of like societal pathology by the few who are trying to create an identity for themselves by flashing it or flaunting it, as opposed to the many wealthy people that I know that simply want to be left alone and remain anonymous and focus on the things that are important in life. Yeah. The best situation to be is maybe like that centimillionaire or billionaire that nobody's ever heard of. That's sweet. You just do whatever you want. And the idea is to live closer to your true self, right? Your core beliefs, because a lot of people shut up and just take it at a job they don't like or work with people who offend them or whatever, because they need that financial security or those benefits. If you want some more motivation on achieving financial freedom, this is it. Being able to live closer to your true self, not have to suppress your true beliefs and feelings because you need that financial security. I think it's interesting that you've chosen your true self is still waking up at 6 a.m. on Saturday mornings and writing and learning and doing the book, even though I know you could do whatever the hell you want on Saturday mornings. So I think it's cool that you've chosen these things that feel very authentic to you and provide a lot of value for the world. Thanks for taking the time to come by the show and share your ideas today. Old habits are also hard to change. <laughs> I wish I could sleep. I swear to God, I wish I could sleep for seven, eight hours in a row. I can't. It's like <laughs> six hours maximum. I feel like it's almost like Pavlov's dog or because I had to wake up at 5 a.m. to go to work in banking and I just can't change. So it's a journey, but that's the fun thing. Take it as a journey. And one of the reasons why I wrote Buy This, Not That during the pandemic was one, I was offered this opportunity. But two, I wanted to look at this terrible time, this really annoying, painful time for many people with fondness, with a F you to the pandemic and say, pandemic sucked. It disrupted our lives. You know what? Brought a daughter into this world and took care of them, our kids. And I wrote a book that I think will help anybody who chooses to read it. And that's what I'm going to look back at. Because in 2008, during the global financial crisis, I was going through some similar emotions, like doubt, fear, worry. But I decided then to propose to my girlfriend at the time because I was like, no, screw you, global financial crisis. I'm going to propose to my girlfriend because I can lose all my money. So long as I don't lose her, everything will be okay. So the number one thing I think about first during the previous financial crisis was our small little wedding. And hopefully years from now, the thing I'll remember most during this time, birth of our daughter and creation of the book. Big shout out to Sam Dogan for coming by the show and definitely go over to financialsamurai.com. Subscribe to his newsletter. It's really good. I read it every week. Check out the book when it comes out. Obviously, I read it this week. It's really, really high quality stuff. And I think personal finance is something that's under talked about for entrepreneurs and for personal finance bloggers. Entrepreneurship is not talked about enough. And Sam really reaches across the aisle, so to speak, in an intelligent way 
coming from experience. So I appreciate that. Hope you appreciated it. That's it for next week. Email us your questions, thoughts, ideas for episodes. We're looking forward to a great summer here at the TMBA pod. We'll hope you join us next Thursday, as always, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.